Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John and chapter 17. Today we'll be in verses 9 through 19, and it's written on the back of your bulletin uh, if you want a copy of it in front of you, and there's a good place to take notes if that would benefit you and your discipleship of Jesus Christ. Well, the primary mode of the human heart is worship, and we become like what we worship. And so if we're going to worship well this coming week, no matter what we face, we're going to worship Jesus Christ. That's what we want to worship. That's who we must worship. And if we do that, in order to do that, we want to know who Jesus is. We want to know what Jesus is like. If our hearts are going to be set on him, we need passages like John 17. Today, in his prayer for his 11 disciples, it's in the context of the big high priestly prayer. Today, we're focusing in on verses 9 through 19, where Jesus prays for his 11 disciples. We're going to see the heart of Jesus for those he was closest to. And you can learn a lot about someone when you listen to them pray, and when you listen to them talk about their closest companions. So in order for us to be able to worship Jesus well this week, let's turn our eyes towards the heart of Jesus, which we'll see in John 17. Before I read those verses, let me pray. Lord, you sing over your people. You are glad that we are here for worship. You have gathered us, your children, your family, Having adopted us into your family, you now gather us for worship. You find great joy in this, and we ask that you would help us find all of our joy in you today. Lord, as the word is read and preached, give us ears to hear from you. Give us hearts to receive your teaching with joy and obedience. And Father, we know that you promise to do everything our hearts need you to do for them. So may we receive these next few moments in your word as a nourishing gift from your loving hands. It's in Christ's name that we thank you and pray. Amen. John 17, verses 9 through 19. I'm going to read it all and then we'll walk through it. And as I read it, listen for the the verbs that Jesus uses, okay? Listen to the whole thing, but particularly listen to the verbs. John 17, starting in verse 9. This is the glorious word of our Lord. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world. But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy 
fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. We're continuing on in Jesus' great high priestly prayer. If you missed the context from last Sunday, Jesus was facing the greatest challenge that any human being would ever face in the history of the world. He's not just fully man, fully human, experiencing what we experience when we go through pain, suffering, and trial, but he was also fully God. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he was facing what would be the hardest moment. And so he goes to prayer. He was going to accomplish the Father's will and obey the Father all the way to death on the cross so that we, as we heard last week, might receive eternal life. And it's not just eternal breathing, it's eternal zoe, the word for abundant life, joyful life, fulfilled life, glorious life. Jesus was facing that moment and he was praying that the Father would be glorified through his actions. And now he turns in his mind, in his prayer, to his 11 disciples. Now, he will be praying for us throughout the prayer. And he does pray for all of the things we're going to see this morning, for us as his disciples today. But he particularly had his 11 disciples, because Judas had already betrayed him, on his mind. Particularly the ones he spent all of the last three or so years of ministry. And as he's thinking of those 11, it's probably particularly difficult as he is reminded that one sold him out. Judas has already sold him out. And so as Jesus is praying for the 11, and then by extension, all of us, the disciples of Jesus, I want us to focus on four of the verbs Jesus uses. The four verbs will form an outline this morning. First, keep them. Second, unify them. Third, delight them. And fourth, sanctify them. Keep them, unify them, delight them, and sanctify them. Before we get to those four verbs, we need to ask, who is the them again? Look at verses 9 and 10 in Jesus' high priestly prayer. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Here Jesus is thinking about his followers, his disciples, and particularly the eleven, because later he references that one of those he's talking about has left, and that's Judas. And the eleven disciples are the ones he entrusted his mission to. Isn't this interesting? Uh, Jesus doesn't go around and evangelize the whole world, right? He would do it better than us, right? Wouldn't he? But Jesus doesn't do that. He sends his 11 disciples to go make disciples of all of the world. So Jesus discipled a handful of people, and he sends them to evangelize the world. 
As we think about the 11 that he's sending and his disciples at the time, do you ever feel inadequate in your evangelism? Do you ever feel inadequate? If you never feel inadequate in evangelism, then come tell me your story because I want to learn from you because that would be very rare. I've never heard someone say, evangelism is the easiest thing for me. Everything else is hard, but evangelism is easy. Isn't it interesting then that in God's perfect plan for the salvation of the world, for people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that Jesus sends inefficient evangelizers into the world, imperfect evangelizers into the world, inadequate evangelists into the world, Isn't that interesting? Or maybe that's the reason why he sends us into the world. Maybe part of Jesus' mission, sending us into the world to bring the good news of Jesus to the world, is because you and I have messed up. You and I have sinned. We are inadequate. We don't always do it the right way. We don't always have the best words on our lips. Maybe it's because God wants to show the world amazing grace— that he sends us into the world because we needed amazing grace. We were blind and now we can see. We were lost and now we're found. That was the perfect plan of the Father. And so Jesus is thinking of his particular disciples at the time, but every time he's thinking of his disciples, you and I are also on his mind. But who is the them? His current disciples who would be watching the next 24 hours unfold which would have been one of the hardest things for anyone to watch. Jesus' arrest and his mockery and his trial and his torture and his public execution. And we see in this prayer Jesus' heart for his disciples. And we must remember now that even though Jesus has ascended to heaven with the Father, right now, even now, Jesus is interceding for you, praying these same things for you that today— These verbs would all be true for you and me. So four verbs. Keep them, unify them, delight them, sanctify them. Number one, keep them. Here's a big word in these verses. Look at verse 11. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. So Jesus was going to ascend into heaven to the Father. Holy Father, here's the verb, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And now Jesus adds another verb to keep. He adds guard. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus knows he's going to go through what he's going to go through. He's going to die. He's going to rise again on the third day. He's going to spend a few weeks with them, and then he's going to leave. He's going to send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But as he's thinking about them, he's using verbs like keep them and guard them. And what does that tell us? In this world, there will be trouble. If you have never had trouble in this world, again, talk to me. How are you pulling that off? In this world, we will have trouble. So Jesus, our Savior, is praying that we would be kept and guarded. And the disciples knew things were already getting dicey. Judas had already left. Jesus said to the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. They know there's trouble. Judas is that son of perdition in the old versions or son of destruction. 
And what we're not learning here is that Judas was saved and then unsaved, but rather Judas walked with Jesus for years. He listened to Jesus for years. But when the offer got too sweet, he was offered a considerable sum to sell Jesus out, and maybe the promise of notoriety or fame or protection got too exciting for him. His heart revealed its true allegiance. Jesus was not his Lord and Savior. Judas was his own Lord and Savior, so he was trying to spare himself. He consents to selling Jesus out. And as the disciples come to realize what happened, they know, wow, there's already trouble for disciples of Jesus. But Jesus protected his disciples while he walked with them. And now that Jesus will return to the Father, he's praying for you and me. He's praying for his disciples. Father, keep them, guard them, protect them. Now look at verse 15. We see the verb again. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Isn't it so shocking what Jesus does here? Uh, if there's going to be trouble in this world, why don't we just get taken out of the world? And when my children are getting hurt in a sports game or in a playground or whatever it might be, I want to take them out of the situation where there will be trouble. But Jesus does not take us out of this world. In fact, you're here today because Jesus has left you here in a world of trouble and trial and suffering and persecution for his mission, for his glory. Jesus says to the Father, don't take them out of the world, but guard them while they're in this world and keep them from the evil one. But our hearts, we just want to avoid all trouble. We just want to run when there's any trouble. Jesus isn't praying, Lord, help them run from trouble. He's praying, Lord, keep them through the trouble. Guard them in the midst of trial. And that means as disciples of Jesus, we should expect that in this world there will be trouble. Not only that, if Jesus took us out of the world, the mission would be over. We are the ones called by Jesus to go into the world and share the good news. And even if we face all the trouble in the world, Jesus is praying that we would be safe because he is asking the Father to keep you and guard you. That's really good news, especially if the one who's keeping us and guarding us is powerful. Uh, this past week, I decided to look up military body armor. I wanted to see what, like, what is the most protective gear that people use when they go out into a battlefield of trouble. I wanted to see what the new tech was. I saw some really interesting things. But I stumbled, as I normally do, on a waste of time. And I saw a story about armadillos. Okay, here's why. So uh, when they do human body armor techniques, a lot of human body armor improvements are based off of armor that animals have, that God has already created in the world. So I saw this story about armadillos. Back in 2015, a man in Texas went out into his yard at 3 a.m. So you know where the story is going. He spotted an armadillo. He went back in and got his 38, and he shot the armadillo three times. Now the problem is the armadillo has body armor, and one of those three shots ricocheted off of the armadillo and non-fatally hit the man. I was telling Pastor Aria about it because he used to live in Texas, and he said, yeah, that could happen in Texas. <laughs> 3 a.m., shooting an armadillo. Yep, sounds like Texas. Armadillos have body armor, so this one armadillo can defend itself from a bullet. All right, if you think that's impressive, 
All the stuff I saw on military body armor, it was so impressive. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this week, in the spiritual warfare we are facing, we have such greater armor that Jesus is praying for and applying to us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Sin cannot stop us. Satan cannot trick us. Death cannot stop us. Jesus is constantly praying that you and I would be protected, would be guarded, would be kept, and we're going to need it because in this world we will have trouble. But he died to give us armor in this world. The armor of God. Look at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them, listen to this, what's our body armor? Keep them in your name. If you underline, underline the in your name. Because the name of God is actually referring to all of God's power, all of God's authority. It's not just the letters of his name, Yahweh or Jehovah, right? It's not just that. It's his jurisdiction. It's all of his angel army. It's everything he can do with his voice. He spoke the cosmos into creation. All power is his. All authority is his. All influence is his. He can shut the mouths of kings. He can stop every king in the world and raise up new ones in a moment's notice. That is what we are kept by. The name of God. The psalmist knows that that's what the name of God means. Psalm 54 verse 1 says this, O God, save me by your name. His name is power. His name is mighty. His name is all of his jurisdiction. He is the supreme court, and he has all power in this world. So Jesus, for his disciples, knowing what they're going to watch over the next 24 hours, and knowing what they're going to face, and knowing what you're facing right now, because he knows your story too, He offers protection. He dies to give you protection. And he intercedes with the Father right now and prays for your protection. Isn't he good? Isn't that glorious? Because we need that. How do we stay kept then? How do we stay guarded then? We put on the armor of God. We spend time in God's Word. We spend time singing and listening to the gospel, time in prayer, time with the one whose name protects us. Jesus prays for the disciples, keep them. And he gave his life so that we would be guarded. That's the first verb. That's what Jesus is thinking of when all you and I would be thinking of is, Lord, keep me from arrest, torture, mockery, execution. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about us, that we might be kept. Verb one. Verb two, unify them. Jesus doesn't use the verb unify, but it's a summary of what he's praying for. And notice the connection to the keeping and the unity. Look at verse 11. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. Now, here's the key. That they may be one, even as we are one. All right, so unify them. One primary way that God keeps disciples safe, keeps us guarded, keeps us protected, is by adding us to a local church and giving us unity in the church, giving us unity in Christ Jesus. This is the church, and we must fight for unity. 
Isn't it interesting? The Bible never says, once you all have the same personality type, you'll have unity. Or once you all have the same opinions on every small matter, you'll be one. Once you all have the same careers, success stories, you'll be one. No, it's in fact because we're different, because we have different stories, different testimonies, different personalities, because we're diverse in so many ways, that's why Jesus is praying for our unity. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one. And then what does he say? Even as we are one. I've said this before. I said it last week. Before the creation of the world, there was a perfect community of unity. Father, Son, and Spirit, the triune God, giving and receiving love, giving and receiving glory, a perfect community. Adam and Eve were created and inviting into that perfect, harmonious fellowship. Our first parents sinned and broke off the relationship. So now there is enmity between sinners and God, enmity between man and wife, enmity and confusion between parents and children. There's every relationship is broken in some way. No relationship is perfect. And Jesus is saying, keep them that they may be one, Lord, even as we are one. Jesus is praying that a group of sinners would get to share in the sweet, perfect, eternal family unity that the triune God has experienced forever. That's what he wants for us. So Jesus offers unity. He's praying right now that we would be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we stay united? He's praying for it. Well, we as a church here at Cornerstone try to keep the main things the main things. Our statement of faith doesn't have 179 items. We try to keep the plain things in Scripture, the plain things. We don't fight over the debatable things. We keep the gospel front and center and our own nuanced theological positions. We talk about those in the background, in the classrooms, but we don't divide over those. We unite around our statement of faith. And on the first Sunday of each month, we share the Lord's Supper with people who are different than us, who come from different backgrounds than us, who have different testimonies than us, and who have different opinions on things like exactly how the end times are going to play out. When is Jesus going to return? What is exactly going to happen when Jesus returns? We can disagree on that, but Jesus is going to return. And all God's people said, amen. So we major on what we can agree on and what we can unify around. Come, Lord Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if he comes today? And we work and pray against divisiveness in the church, because that's what Jesus is praying for. Father, keep them, unite them, give them oneness like we've had. And on the last day, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to know that for real. Perfect harmony in the midst of incredible diversity. People from every time, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, singing with one voice, worship to Jesus our King. He's praying for that, and he promises to make it happen. So unify them, Lord. They're going to need it in a world like this back then, and we still need it today. That's the second verb. The third verb is delight them. Delight them. Verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, listen to this, this is what Jesus wants, you, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
So the disciples were hated in the first century. It eventually became very dangerous to meet and gather for worship in the first century. Eventually, the Christians had to flee from Jerusalem. A lot of persecution, a lot of violence, a lot of mockery. We talked about this in the Sunday school class this morning on parenting. Uh, It was a little bit of a segue, but the early Christians were called cannibals by other scholars and other historians. Why? Because they got together and they ate the body and blood of Jesus. They gathered and had the Lord's Supper. And so other religions and other historians were saying, I guess this is a group of cannibals. So there are names for Christians today that people in the world use to mock us or malign us or stereotype us. Well, it's easier than being called cannibals. The first Christians were called that. The first Christians were going to face being hated by the world. Let me ask a question. Raise your hand if you like being hated. I don't see a single hand. Thank you. You know why I didn't see a hand? Because most of the teenagers are at the youth retreat, and one or two of them are always like, oh, yeah, yeah. They're just rebel, rebellion, right? Since we're going to be hated, since we're going to be persecuted, we're going to need true joy. We're going to need the delight of the Lord. Joy is delight even in the midst of hard circumstances, like the world hating us, like not being of this world, or like the basic call of Jesus to take up your cross and follow me. Dying for Jesus, dying to ourselves, dying to what we want every day and living for Jesus, that's hard. And so Jesus is praying that we might have joy every minute. And joy is untouchable. I talked with uh, Pat Sharp earlier today because I asked permission to share a story about Charlie Sharp. Uh, We've got Pat Sharp with us. She's still with us. But uh, Charlie went home to be with the Lord in um, the end of 2016, and we had his funeral in January of 2017. As I was thinking about this, God's joy that Christ purchased for us in the midst of any situation All week long, I was thinking of Charlie Sharp, and I was thinking of how he died. And so here's what I said at his funeral. I'm just going to read from my funeral notes. As I was remembering Charlie's life, I said this. I remember one moment more than any other. I asked Charlie how his day was going. And I knew at the time that he was facing some challenges, some difficult trials, trials that brought tears to his eyes. So I said, how's your day going? And he said this. Here's what he said. I'll never forget it. It was in the foyer. Are you kidding me? We're saved. We're redeemed. It's the best day ever. Pat, I know you've heard those. You've heard me say that. Charlie knew the joy of Christ and facing trials that brought tears to his eyes. He still had a joy that was untouchable by circumstances. And that can only come from Christ, not from money, power, pleasure, influence, entertainment. It comes from Christ. The joy of Christ is ours. Jesus has joy that is unstoppable in this world. Think about his joy and how the joy of Jesus got him through. Last week, I mentioned Hebrews 12 too. Let me read it again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Think about that. Think about the cross. Jesus was going to his arrest, his mockery, his betrayal by one of his disciples, and his public humiliation 
torture, and execution. And Scripture tells us that Jesus saw that coming with joy in his heart. Not happiness. He wasn't being whipped by the whip going, yeah, this is fun. There was no happiness, but there was joy. It's the joy of Christ. He offers that to us, and he prays for us that we would have the joy that got him through execution on a cross. And he doesn't just pray for it. It is a promise through the power of the Holy Spirit, because joy, this joy, is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and a number of other things. So joy isn't some rare thing that only the most mature Christians can experience through trials. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It grows slowly, but surely in each believer. And the reason it grows is because Jesus has been praying for our joy for thousands of years, and he died to give us his joy. So we're going to experience that. And the joy is situated not in feelings of happiness, but in our relationship with the Father. First uh, John 1 says it this way. First John 1, 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was praying for. Now verse 4 And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So if you're thinking, I'm not happy at all. My life is very difficult. What are you talking about, joy? I'm not talking about happiness. We're not talking about fun. We're not talking about laughter and birthday parties and everything going smooth. We're talking about the joy that comes through having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the glory of being able to wake up and say, thank you, God, that I'm forgiven for all my sins. I'm clean. There's no condemnation for me. The joy of that is untouchable. So Jesus promises that, and he prays for that. Lord, delight them. Jesus is praying that no matter what you face this week, you would be delighted in him as you go through it. That's the third verb. Delight them. How do we keep that joy? We share the gospel, we rehearse the gospel, we worship God, and we pray. Time with the one who gives joy. Our fourth and final verb is sanctify them. Sanctify them. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, it's as simple as this. Since we are sinners and since we are sent into this world, we need to be sanctified. If you don't know the word sanctification, it means growing in the faith. It means growing in holiness, growing in righteousness, growing in the fruit of the Spirit, growing up and maturing as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a big word, sanctification. It also means set apart. So Jesus sets us apart as his people, his disciples, and he helps us grow gradually in the fruit of the Spirit. When we come to place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're saved immediately, and then we're sent into the world to share that good news, but we need to grow through sanctification. So we could paraphrase, paraphrase these few verses here by this. Sent sinners are sanctified by the Savior. 
Sent sinners are sanctified by the Savior. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're sent into this world and you're sanctified because you're a sinner. And so even though you've still sinned this past week and you'll sin again this week, Jesus is growing you as a disciple. So sent sinners are sanctified by the Savior. How does this happen? Well, it doesn't happen by you trying harder. It doesn't happen by a new self-control app on your phone. It doesn't happen through money or power or entertainment or influence. One thing is what sanctifies us. Would you like to grow? Would you like to be sanctified? How does it happen? What is the tool? What does Jesus pray? Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is it, friends. The word of God. The world has its own word. Jesus has his word. We trust and love his word, and we don't trust and love the word of the world. The world has a kingdom, but we are citizens of another kingdom. We are not from here anymore. Like Jesus is saying, they're going to be hated because they're not from here. They're not from this world. We're ambassadors from another country. Our primary citizenship is not here. The world is going to hate us for, time, for certain things, but we are sent anyways. So Jesus promises to keep working on us, to keep sanctifying us. And in that promise, since sanctification is a long, slow promise, here's what Jesus knows as he prays for you. He knows that you are going to require patience. He knows that you need to be nourished daily. He knows that you're going to mess up and you're going to need correction. He knows he's going to need to coach you. He knows for each of your hearts, for your heart, there's that one thing and it just keeps catching you. He knows. He understands. He's not going to give up on you. He's going to keep sanctifying you. He promises and he's praying for that. Not just once in John 17, he prayed for it today as he intercedes for you and me. The Apostle Paul reminds us how sure this promise is in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this. Jesus is sure of this too. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Jesus knows you're occasionally a little bit hard to work with. And he is not going to give up on you. He's going to sanctify you. He promises to carry it on, not halfway, not until halftime, but all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. One more promise about this before we wrap it up. Romans 8, 38. Because here's what some people think when they hear of what Jesus is going to do. He's going to sanctify us. He's going to make us more like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit's going to grow. Some Christians think sometimes, but, but what if I run away? What if I separate myself? What, what if I distance myself from God? Well, Scripture has an answer for whether or not you can separate yourself from this plan that Jesus has begun in your heart. Romans eight thirty eight. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including you. I added that. But you are in creation, so you're in that list. Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.
Jesus will sanctify you. He will grow you. He will be patient with you. He will nourish you. This week, he will help you grow. Maybe it's just a little bit. Maybe it's the smallest victory. Thank him for that. Trust him for that. He's going to keep us. He's going to unify us. He's going to delight us. And he's going to sanctify us. But if you want to partner with him in that instead of work against him in that, we are sanctified by his word. If the worries of the world dominate your mind and not the promises of Scripture dominating your mind, you'll be distracted. If the fears of this world, instead of the solutions of God's word, dominate your mind and your thoughts, you will be anxious. If the songs of the world are in your head all the time, those catchy tunes, and no song of praise to God is in your heart, you're working against the sanctification by the word. And if you've got all these witty catchphrases and pop phrases to to get you through business deals and you don't have any scripture memorized in your heart, well, you're not partnering with Christ in the sanctification by the word. And so if you want to be sanctified by the word, trust that Jesus is going to do it and spend time in his word because this is his primary tool to sanctify us. This is Christian discipleship. Keep them, Lord. Unify them. Delight them. Sanctify them. Jesus takes responsibility for this happening. And brothers and sisters, this week, because Jesus promised it and he's praying for it, you will be kept. You will be unified. You will be delighted and you will be sanctified because he lives today and he's interceding for you now. So what is going to happen this week as we walk with Jesus in faith, as we receive all of this by faith? Let me let Jesus end the sermon. Verse 13 from our text. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let's pray. Lord, give us this joy. Delight our hearts with you. Sanctify us by your word. Give us a hunger and thirst for your scriptures each day. Give us a longing each day for times of prayer with you. Give us a heart that leaps in joy, remembering that we've been redeemed by grace through faith. Help us remember the things you've saved us from. May the praise of your Son, Jesus, be on our lips continually for our good and your glory. Lord, thank you that your Son, Jesus, is praying that we would be kept. Lord, help us be kept from the evil one. Guard us, Lord. Help us be unified as a church family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Make that unity palpable and healing and redeeming for our church family. Father, delight us as you are delighted in our presence. Help us have that same joy of the Lord every day. And Lord, sanctify us by your word. Your word is truth. Thank you that you haven't left us alone in this world, but you've given us your word and you promise to nourish us daily with it. May all these things happen, Lord, because Jesus, your son and our savior, is praying that they would happen. In his name we pray. Amen.